At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Howdy, everyone. If you enjoy the show, join our free Discord. Link in the description and chat with the cast. Please leave a review and consider joining our Patreon for behind-the-scenes content and more. Tears start at a dollar, and even that helps us out. To stay up to date with episode releases and more, follow us on Twitter at Riffway Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Riffs and Brews, uh, where we're going to sit down and talk with indie content creators, talk about their world building mechanics, etc. Today, we are talking with David Barentine, creator of the World of Orinth. <laughs> Hi, hello. <laughs> nice to meet you. I guess to start at the beginning. So, what uh, what got you into kind of homebrewing? basically creating professional homebrew stuff um well i mean <laughs> as professional as it looks i guess uh, i to me it just still feels like a hobby um what got me into it as i was basically doing it anyway uh started with third edition got into it as a player obviously got to start somewhere the dm we had left so if i was going to continue playing i had to become a dm uh, which meant I would have to build my own stories because at the time you couldn't just go on D and D beyond and download things. There weren't a lot of shops here and around where I was at. So it was, you have the source books and go. And over time, I just learned more and more how to do writing, how to do uh, mechanics, how to do various other things. And a lot of what I was writing became quite a bit more uh, either subtle or complex or mechanically interesting. And it, it continued to grow, making it so that I couldn't remember most stuff without writing it down. And the more that I wrote stuff down, the more I had actual content that I was like really proud of and wanted people to see. So I made the I made the conscious decision one one day. Uh, I had done an adventure for my group. I was really happy with it. It was one of the cleanest things I'd put together. I was learning how to do cartography. Uh, I wanted to do something with my graphic design degree from college. And I was like, you know what? I've got all these puzzle pieces and it's looking like this is what the puzzle is supposed to put together to look like. So let's see what happens. And I sat down for about a uh, month 
like really polishing, getting something together. And I put out my first homebrew bit of content about three years ago called Lights Out at the Nightwatch Lighthouse. And it has gone on to become my first DMs Guild gold medal uh, adventure. So I'm assuming people like my stuff and that that sort of reciprocation of enjoyment has just like fed my creative urge to continue to put stuff out there and thus I keep creating. Nice. So what uh what inspired like the world that you've you started, you know, building uh World of Wrath? <laughs> um spite. Spite and hatred. <laughs> I wish I could say anything else, but uh no, RPG horror story style uh spite and hatred. So um I almost fell out of the hobby, actually. For about a year and a half, I just sort of stopped playing to the point that I was getting ready to get rid of my third edition uh, books. And I had a friend of a friend wanted to run a game. So uh, I was invited and I was excited. I put together a character sheet. Uh, I was getting ready to like pass it over for review. And I was told, no, 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 we're going to actually build the character sheets out there during the session because the DM had a girlfriend who wanted to learn how to play. So he wanted us to build character sheets together so that we could lend our aid to hers and she could see how ours were created. Not a red flag at the time, but uh, when we got there, if you've played third edition or 3.5, which this one was a 3.5 game, you know how much harder uh, it was to get a character sheet together than it is for fifth edition. Uh, not not in the sense of like it's mechanically harder. It just takes more time. So of the four hours that we had to play, the first two hours was character creation. And as soon as everybody had their character sheets together, the DM asked uh, for us to hand them over. He put them behind his back and then pulled out pre-made character sheets and said, these would be our characters. And we were all just immediately like, why did you do that? Why did we have to sit sit here and make character sheets if you were going to make us play pre-mades? He told us the story that got us to where we were at, told us who we were, who the characters were, what we had to play by. Uh, another 30 minutes went by between him and a, and a player arguing. Another 30 minutes went by between him focusing solely on his girlfriend. And then the last hour was 15 minutes of gameplay and then 40 minutes of you can't play your character that way because it's not how the character would play. And when the session ended, I had the bug to continue playing again. It had been a year and a half. I wanted to play, but that was not what I wanted. So I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to just run the game myself because that was awful. And I had him be a player in that game because... <laughs> To me, I was being, I was, like I said, I was being spiteful. I was like, I'm going to show him how to actually play a game. And boom, the world started. It was not a massive thing. It was very small, very intimate, a set of five players, one town. It wasn't technically the world at that point. It was just one, like one town that ended up becoming like a city within the campaign world. But uh, this city, we just did like a basic sort of, here's how you play. Here's a story that's going on. I was designing a few dungeons. I was designing the story. I ended up pulling in uh, another city that they had to go to. And at that point, I was starting to see some connective tissue, some dots starting to overlap with each other. 
we had a small area in the world that was starting to expand. I knew some stuff that was there, but I didn't know what the world was. When we wrapped up that campaign, I had another friend of mine that had jumped in near the very tail end, like the last three sessions, they jumped in. And this was right before 5th edition came out. So uh, they jumped in. We started reading through the 5th edition stuff, playing through the starter set. In the meantime, my friend had created a map on a whim. He just created a world map. He thought it was cool and wanted to populate it with cities. And we sat down for like three hours and filled the world with 21 different major cities, two of which included the two cities that I had put into my previous game. And the world of Oranth was born from that setting, like that sitting down, that having a conversation. And we moved forward with that as our main continent and have been playing on that continent now for about seven years. So, yeah, uh, to answer your question, spite, spite is what started this, uh, uh, the setting. Yeah, I I can get behind that. I do a lot of things out of spite, (laughs) like wake up and (laughs) go on through the world. Nothing motivates you quite like pure, unadulterated, passionate rage. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I hate to say it, but yeah, that's, that's very true. Since then, uh, that player no longer plays with us. Uh, he and I had a difference of opinion on how the how the game should be played, um, which is fine. Uh, we're not in any terms like aggress towards either party but he doesn't like my games i don't like his games so we don't play in each other's games that's really all there is to it but those that have uh, continued to play my games have uh continued to inspire me to grow this world and grow uh the different towns and villages and orders and guilds and schools and lore and history and just like I continue to create and build because I love seeing the people that play in my world play in the play with the toys that I've created for them. I love watching them bring their own toys as well. Anytime there's a new player and they come with a new character, I ask them where they're from. I give them a bit of stuff about the world and ask them where they're from. If they don't want to be from any space that's already there, I ask them if they want to create a new space. And if they do, there's a new space on the map. They have to just give me three to five points of interest for that area. And it goes on the map and it stays there. I did a one shot for a group of students at my wife's school. And there is, there are two towns that are on the map now because of that one shot, because of those students. And they will always be on the map because I, I had her students join for a couple, for a game for a couple hours. That's pretty cool. I like the, you know, participation creation thing. It helps it grow organically because I, if you're the only one that's putting in the effort to be the creative source for this game, eventually you're going to tap out of your own creative resources and whether or not the people that are joining know it, like having them just give me three to five bullet points from on occasion really drives my creativity because I'll see those bullet points and think how I can interconnect those to the next town over, or I can build a specific sort of celebration that is centric to that area and maybe there's a bit of war that grows from that or maybe there's a magic item that grows through that or maybe there's some sort of reverence to a certain god and that means there's a cult here that's uh worshiping that god but 
because they're coming in and helping this world grow organically through their contributions, it is raising my own awareness of uh, how I can continue to, I guess, like dive into their creativity to fuel my own. I like that. Yeah, one one of the guys is uh, going to be playing with me is a uh, coworker, so you know he's like you know gives me ideas for like his backstory, and I'm like, yeah, I could put that in my game. Yeah, I I can't tell you how many times I've created a new order or guild or group because somebody's like, I'd like to be from this, but they don't have the flavor I'm looking for. I'd like this guild, but I want it to be more this flavor. I'm like, ooh, ooh, we could do. Hmm, we can move these pieces around and maybe we can see how this can become this. Yeah. Yeah. And they're from here and like they're tied into this area and like, here's the history for that guild and here's their main tenants and Ooh, and here's some dirty secrets they're hiding. And I start to build things and stories off of that. And they end up in the guild and uh, they don't even know like a quarter of what I've created based off of just them saying, I like this, but with this flavor. Yeah, that's cool. But I mean, whatever works, whatever like, whatever drives you, that's the important thing. Yeah, I I know I've talked to like a lot of people who uh, DM and stuff, and was like, oh, where'd you get that idea for that thing? Oh, well, uh, you know, one of the players suggested it, and it was better than what I had, so (laughs) (laughs) that became the thing. I swear, that's not like that's that's becoming a trope at this point for good reason. As long as it's a good idea, you know. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's like anytime you see uh some of these homemade repairs on certain things, it's like, well, it's only a bad idea if it doesn't work. <laughs> very true. Very true. Mm. Now you've been introduced to kind of the world in a broad sense, but you're here to talk about uh, what was it? You wanted to talk about the content itself, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I've shared with you quite a few different pieces that I've created. I do a lot of adventures because adventures is kind of where my heart lies. I I prefer the narration, the narrative, pushing stories, collecting people to the table and seeing them run through the adventures together. So primarily what I've put out are adventures. And I've shared with you like the four or five that I've done so far. Of those, are there any that catch your eye or your attention that you want to uh, start off by delving into together? Uh, obviously the Hellion Heist, because uh, I love heist shit. All right. Well, uh, the Helian Heist is my most recent adventure. Fuck, I am I super proud of this one. It's fine. It's fine. Um, he, it's In the world, there are the Nine Divines, and the, the top goddess is a, is a goddess by the name of Helia. And the Helian Heist is named after uh, the temple that's there in town you're going to end up in the temple of Helia. So you are heisting Helia's temple, but it is my most recent adventure. I'm super excited and proud of this one. Uh, And I don't really know where to begin without just like word vomiting into the podcast here. So I'm going to let you like guide the conversation. (laughs) Uh, It's a conversation, my friend, a conversation. I would like, I would like very much for you to participate. Well, I uh, I may have ended up downloading all all the stuff you sent me earlier just now. (laughs) I was going to wait till payday, but it's like, ah, oh, man, I want it. I keep it cheap. Like yeah. for those that are listening, the most expensive thing I have out there is a level one through 20 adventure. Everything else is $2 or less. 
Yeah, even the I even the one through twenty is fifteen. That's it. Yeah, so I'm but, I'm looking at a map of Pine Pass right now. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the quiet town of Pine Pass. They live out each day as if it's their simple and most precious day. Um, Pine Pass is one of the first towns I created outside of like the original cities, and to a degree, it is where I play test ideas. When I start putting together one shots, when I start putting it together adventures, Pine Pass becomes the place where that uh, sort of exists and lives. And I had done a few things at the table that revolved around this place. And some of those started coming into adventures that I was building out. But for this one specifically, I had the realization that for all the adventures that I'd done in this place, the townsfolk had only ever been the arbiters of the quest. You are only ever in the town long enough to speak to somebody to get the quest that then takes you out of the town. And I thought it would be fun, specifically for a heist, if Pine Pass itself became the dungeon. If that makes sense. <laughs> it does. Good. Good. I can't, I cannot, like, I, I try to think of this all the time. There's a, there's an article about good dungeon design and the illusion of choice. And how everything goes from point A to point B, but the path that you take to get there gives the party that party choice that lets them feel like they're the ones that are making the choice to reach the end of the uh, adventure. Yeah, where each, each fork in the road goes to the same destination, but... Yes. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is exactly that. And this was one of the harder things for me to figure out how to tie that together. Because in dungeons, you generally have hallways that connect those rooms together. And those rooms are where the encounters happen. And I didn't have hallways here. You have the town of Pine Pass. And in this adventure, you full-on get to explore the town of Pine Pass. There are... Five, uh, there are five buildings that you get to actively go to as a part of the adventure. And of those five buildings, two of them also have maps of, them, of their interiors that you can full-on explore. So the big goal here was figuring out how to connect those in such a way that it would still organically push the party from one area to the next. And the the best way that I could do that was tying bits and pieces of information that mention our, uh, different places that would pique their curiosity and lead them down the storyline. But given that this is an adventure that takes place in a town, sometimes the clearest clues are not going to really catch the attention of the players, and they're going to go off and explore different aspects of the town. So what I did in this one to maintain the story narrative, to continue pushing them to the right spot in the story that I want them to be in, uh, to give them that illusion of choice, no matter where they go in this adventure, they actively pick up rumors or snippets of conversation from people in the town that will push them sort of subtly back into the uh, story. It's, it's a story that is semi-on-rails, as any narrative story is going to be, 
but it's a story that lets the party choose how they get on and off the rails as they want. Nice. Yeah, I've been kind of scrolling through this thing while you're talking about it. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, so what's this ticking clock mechanic you made? Uh, so you and I were talking before the podcast actually got started about uh, creatively borrowing from different things. And I have been reading a lot into Blades in the Dark. I really, really like the concept of Blades in the Dark, but it seems incredibly heavy with all the uh, different moving bits and pieces for the GM to keep up with. But I really, really like the concept of it. So the ticking, mechanic, the ticking clock mechanic is borrowed from how uh, Blades in the Dark does a lot of their, like, I guess, basically ticking clock mechanics to uh, continue to press their story. But in this one, it's tweaked in such a way that it works to further the heist storyline. And by that, I mean, like, any good heist, like if you watch Leverage, if you watch anything that is like full on, this is a heist. The main goal is to get in, get out, and not get seen in the process of it. You're going to run into things that are going to be uh, conflict or intrigue or trap. But overall, your main goal is to not be caught in whatever it is that you're doing. And to actively gauge how well that's being handled in this adventure, the ticking clock mechanic is setting up a bunch of triggers in different uh, encounters in different locations that if those triggers are like hit by the players as they're going through the area, then the ticking clock advances and that just says, oh, some attention is starting to draw to the party. Oh, they've got a little bit more attention drawn to the party. A little bit more is happening. A little bit more is happening. And eventually you've drawn enough attention that there's a pretty significant force of guards here in the city that are going to start coming after you. And that's where the fun of the ticking clock mechanic really comes in because depending upon how well you've achieved your goals in this heist, you could get off scot-free. There might not be a boss encounter to this. If you're really, really good at heist and staying hidden and being stealthy, getting the mission done and getting out, you can escape this adventure without a full-on boss encounter. You will escape Pine Pass with what you need without alerting the guards until the moment you've left the town perimeter. But if you're really bad at it, <laughs> if you're really awful at being a stealthy, sort of subversive, evil-aligned character, you are going to end up coming out of the, Heli uh, the Temple of Helia with the treasure in hand only to be met by the town sheriff, two priests, and an enchanter that have all been sent there to stop you from leaving with the treasure that you came in town to steal. So the ticking clock mechanic is a mechanic specifically set up for the DM to gauge how much attention the party is drawing so that they understand what the boss encounter of this whole adventure is going to be. I really because like that. Yeah. At the end of the day, I thought that was a fun mechanic to play with, too, because it gives sort of a varying degree of difficulty at the very end of this on whether or not you really have a boss to deal with or you don't. And if you do, how hard is it going to be? And <laughs> it's very much the phrase of just enough rope to hang yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. 
but it also at least in my uh mind it also sets up a lot of replay value for this adventure too because it doesn't necessarily play the same way each time you play it i think my favorite thing about it is like i've seen like a lot of people where they're like oh yeah well i rolled a 20 on this check or whatever it's like yeah but it some things aren't possible with certain things like it's I don't know. It, uh, with something like this, it gives it kind of a more sense of urgency to how you role play your stuff. And, or it seems oh, absolutely. That way, you know. Absolutely. And the choices you make matter a, a lot more, too. Like, take, for example, the, uh, the town hall jail situation. So in here, you can't have a heist without some sort of heisty tropes. And one of the tropes that I pulled in here is there's a potential for a jailbreak or a murder. It really depends on how you as a party want to approach it. But the uh, catalyst for this adventure, the thing that jumps everybody into this is there's a cult here working near the area of Pine Pass. They have recently been searching for a book that contains encrypted and archaic power. And they have found it. Their member was returning to the cult moving through the town of Pine Pass, trying to get through the city streets when they were beset upon by the town guard, the sheriff specifically. And in their hustle and their kind of like vying to get out of the town, they opened the book and like surged power up at this guy, at the sheriff. And they didn't know how to control it. The sheriff took some damage, but at the end of the day, the cultist was taken into jail and separated from the book. So, it then becomes the cult's goal to gather some of their better members, send them into Pine Pass with two clear objectives. Find the book at all costs. And locate the missing cult member. They don't care what you do to the cult member. You can free them or you can kill them as long as they can't be around to give any information to the town guard regarding the cult. So part of the heist is, in fact, a jailbreak or you have to get into a jail and murder the person just to be certain that the information doesn't get out there. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now, the jailbreak, if you go in there, if you do, if you do it in the cleanest, best way possible, you can get in there without arousing suspicion from the guards, without arousing suspicion from the other prisoners, without, uh, by using distraction, by using conniving means, and you can get in there and free your friend and leave. If you do that, the missing cultist isn't going to be noticed until after you're out of town. But, more than likely, you're going to get in there and either end up in conflict with the guards that are in the building, or you're going to decide that this person is just not worth saving. Or even uh, go to save them and it arouses the anger of the rest of the, uh, the prisoners that are there that also want to be freed. And it's going to cause complications. It's going to cause people to become more and more aware of your presence within this jailhouse. And because of that, the ticking clock can advance by one or two uh, ticks. Uh, had to get a bit of water. <laughs> So I've, I've really, already had uh, like half a gallon of water. <laughs> <laughs> but it really comes down to how the players make their choices. Because they could go in, they could decide to do the most optimal route. They could decide to do this most suboptimal route. And the choices they make matter. And that's the big thing. That's the most important thing in this adventure. Well, I, I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. The like, Mad Libs are the most important yeah. thing of this adventure. I, I think giving like player choices like weight is always like a, a good thing to have because as uh there was some game where they made like a big deal about like oh you're, you know your actions affect the thing or whatever, and then it's like you get to the end of the game your actions don't really do shit like like Fallout it, uh you know the, it it does a little bit but I mean overall not too much. Like, yeah, and I mean, it's kind of like this. It's kind of the same thing in this as well. Overall, it does have some bearing on the adventure, but not just a massive amount. But it's it's kept better in scope here because this is just a single, like, you're going through town. It's a single thing that's really being affected based off the outcome of your decisions. Mm-hmm. Granted, the thing that's being uh, affected is how you're going to be challenged at the very tail end. It's a pretty big outcome. But it's only like tweaking that one scenario. Yeah, what, what was the, what was the phrase you used? The illusion of choice. Or... Yes, <laughs> that works pretty good. Yeah. So, uh, I forgot what I was about to ask. Yeah. So, uh, in your what's the the overall? Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the name of <laughs> Orinth. Uh, Orinth, yes. Yeah. Do you do you do like a lot of homebrew creatures in that too, or I've got I've got a fair list of homebrew creatures. Yeah, I've got a lot. I think I've got about uh, seventy or so custom monster stat blocks. You ever think of making most a of which? <laughs> I've considered it. I really have, but I'd rather have art pieces for each of the, like each of the monsters that are in it, yeah, and art can be very expensive. Yeah. Good good art is very expensive, yeah. <laughs> good art is very expensive. 
and I can do the artwork for it, but it's time consuming for me. And I just, I don't have the heart to do that much artwork. Mm -hmm. I do know that um, in Knights of the Shadow Realm, one of the big draws to that book, and this is my, this is my baby. This is my biggest thing that I've put out there. One of the biggest draws to that book is it does contain 54 custom monster stat blocks. Uh, three of which are a three-tiered boss, which is the big boss at the end of the game that work in tandem with, with each other to create a CR 30 creature. Oh, it looks like it's on sale right now. It is on sale. The one year anniversary is coming up on January 1st of next year. And to celebrate, I have dropped it to a 50% discount, um, just until the end of the month. And after the end of the month, it will go back to the normal pricing, but right now it's for $7 and 50 cents and you can't really get a massive adventure like that for that price anywhere else. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll definitely have that by the end of the month. So. <laughs> that Merry one's Christmas my big to one. Me. Uh... Yeah. Merry Christmas to you. And I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, I've heard a lot of good feedback from this. A lot of the people that have played it have reached back out to me to send me messages to specifically say, the mystery in this is great. I love how things are connected. It always seems so small from the beginning. It seems like a bunch of side quests, but somehow they always end up like becoming the main quest. And I did that intentionally. Um, so that all the small quests lead you to the main areas that lead you to the big story points that then lead you to solving the mystery of what's actually happening in each section of the adventure. But that one that one's my baby. That one is my love letter to my group. That is a goal that I've always wanted to do ever since I started playing Dungeons and Dragons. I wanted a full scale level one through 20 campaign. I wanted something that felt massive in scope by the time you got to the end of it. I wanted a classic hero journey that full on, like, this is Lord of the Rings at your table. This is Sword of Shannara. This is that classic fantasy vibe of go out, find the magic items, destroy the big bad guy at the very tail end of it. And it's done in such a way that you don't fully understand the full scope until you're halfway through the adventure. And then things start getting really dire and you start really feeling the pressure of what's happening in the story. This one comes with the actual introduction to the world of Orient. This is the history of the four cities that you actively go to in the uh, story. This is the histories of uh, the empire. It is the nine divines that most people will pray to within the world at large it introduces the guilds, orders and schools that you can interact with in the adventure and ways to level up within each of those it comes with four custom races, five custom subclasses, seven backgrounds, the 54 monster stat blocks that we talked about, seven pages of custom magic items and spells. It has handouts, has the full adventure, uh, over 20 maps that are uh, fully illustrated. It is, it is a labor of love. I put in like 95% of the work that's in that book is just my work. I was burning out pretty hard at the very tail end of it, and I brought somebody in to help me write some of the backgrounds and uh, finish out, like rounding out some of the monster stat blocks. But it was it was full, it was very much me saying I love you guys to my players, and uh, I've got to thank not just my players for inspiring me to make the adventure, but the Kickstarters that the kick yeah the what do you call the the people that back a Kickstarter just backers I think that's backers. what it is 
the backers that helped fund that in the first place on Kickstarter. Because if I had, if I had not had the amount of backers that I had on Kickstarter, I would not have a hardcover book out there in the world right now. I don't know. There's a hardcover option. <laughs> uh, there's not on. There's not on Drive Through RPG. Um, it's sort of a. Uh, <laughs> those that backed on the Kickstarter got a hardcover book. Ah, oh, the lucky bastards. <laughs> yeah. I like having hardcover stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. PDFs are uh, fucking amazing for <laughs> keeping track of everything and finding information fast. But it's always nice to have the the physical copy. I completely they, understand they look that. Great on a shelf, you know. It does. And having a book on your shelf that has your name in it really does look nice. Oh, I imagine that's got to feel great. I uh, I don't get super emotional about a lot of stuff, but when my first book came in, I may have teared up a lot <laughs> it's understandable you know yeah. so uh what's your favorite part about you know building these worlds there's there's so much to say is my favorite and I, it's going to jump back and forth it's like trying to pick your favorite child or it is it really is um because at the end of the day, my favorite thing is going to be what I'm most recently been working on. But as far as just building the world in general, I'm going to say spending the time with my friends. I, I, the stuff that I build, I build for them. And completely honest here, like the stuff that I build isn't just me working in a vacuum chamber. It's me working with my friends at my table. The Pantheon was uh, developed working with my friends. The orders and guilds and schools were developed from working with my friends. The Feywild version in this world is fully like a friend of mine his, and uh, his wife. They talked together and like crafted how that was done, how the Feywilds function in this world. The original map was done by my best friend. So like, I think that's my favorite part of this is it's something I can play around with with my friends. Because this is not just me working on this. It is me putting a lot of the effort into like write the stories and put the book out there, do the artwork, do the cartography. But the foundation, the basis of everything comes back and forth from my friends and myself gathering around the table and sharing toys. And I think that's why I love it. I think that's my favorite part about it. And now what's your, what's the hardest part about doing it then? The hardest part about doing it's going to be the same thing that anybody else is going to tell you. If if and if they don't say this, they're lying. It is the grind. Turning a hobby into a a grinding sort of like this is what I'm passionate about, but now I'm monetizing it and putting it out there for people to see. Um, that becomes kind of the hard part. And I don't do just a, I don't do a ton of stuff. In the last three years, I've put out a 240 page book. Three one-shot adventures, a subclass, and a couple of supplements. So it's not like I'm putting out a massive amount of, of content. But what I am putting out, uh, you know, seeing people, seeing people purchase it, seeing people respond to it, seeing people uh, like give me their feedback, also drives me to do to do more creation, create more content, put more out there. But eventually it turns into more of a job and it can kind of drain the fun from it. 
by the time I was done with Knights of the Shadowfell, I was so burnt out. So emotionally and physically just burnt out that it was hard for me to continue playing for about four months. And that's the hardest part about doing. It. Yeah, I know. Uh, what does what they say? Like, if, if you uh, do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, I don't I don't believe that for a second. Like, <laughs> I, I used to love cooking and then I got a job as a chef. And you know what I never did anymore? I, I never cooked when I got home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's if you do if you do something you love, don't monetize it. <laughs> yeah, or, but or if, at least just keep it part time. Like, yeah. Or if you do monetize it, like I could see enjoying this as an actual career if it was my career and that was the scope of my job. But I'm also doing this alongside a forty hour a week. Yeah, I think that's the big difference. Like, yeah, if it's all you do, like if you're a hundred percent on it, and that's your sole income. You're you're not going to be burning out as bad because you're not doing a forty hour job and this is yeah. just this for forty hours or whatever you know. Absolutely, but, but you got to make sure you know definitely take time off and shit. Because I've I've talked to some guys uh, that like podcast or whatever, and they just the burnout's a real thing. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, and remember everybody that's listening to this. Remember, self care is important. Like, take the time if you are feeling a set in, even before you're like really feeling it said and if you have the inkling of a thought that says maybe i need to take a little break maybe you do maybe you need to take a step away and like just chill for a little bit i have a hard time chilling i'm very much a if i'm into something i am fully committed and into something and that's always been my biggest problem is i don't know when i need to pull away until it's at a point where i should have done it months ago um my wife is really good at telling me when I need to take uh, some time to myself. She's a big indicator of when I'm starting to burn out because she'll see it coming before I will. Uh, but yeah, take time to heal. Take time to yourself, uh, especially if you're doing this alongside other jobs and other commitments because it can become a very big burden at, that's not needed for anybody. But end of the day, I love to create stuff. I love telling stories. I love doing cartography. If I wasn't doing this, if I wasn't doing layout and writing and artwork and cartography, I wouldn't be touching on like anything that I learned from college. Like this is my way to, I guess, get something back from the 11 years of college that I've got in graphic design and writing and uh, various other things. And I guess it validates what I did there, but it also just gives me a creative outlet that I don't get from any other aspect of my career or anything else in my life as far as like that urge to create and put something out there. So burnout aside, like once, once I have that time to myself when I heal from it, the first thing I want to do, and this is literally what happened this year too. After those four months that I took some time off to myself, the first thing I did was I crafted a new adventure. And since then, I've crafted another new adventure. And since then, I've started working on another thing that it will be uh, coming out to Kickstarter in February, um, which is a, a, an array of new subclasses, a full new school of spells, and stat blocks based on all the subclasses so that even the DM has some goodies that they can throw in there and throw at their party. I'm also crafting uh, a level one through five campaign. 
that will become a box set that's just sort of in its infancy that I'm very much looking forward to see where that goes. Night. When do we get to uh, look forward to buying that? (laughs) If everything goes accordingly and everything's plotted out uh, the way that I want it to, I'm hoping to have that put into a, um, a Kickstarter come September of next year. Latest, probably October, November, that area, depending upon organization, just getting everything together. But it's coming along very, very fast. I've been in a very high uh, creative production mood the last month where I'm just like pulling on new projects like crazy. Not just for me, for other people too. Uh, I'm, I like to do a lot of layout work for other people and I've been working on uh, comments and cockpit. Uh, comments and cockpits with uh, Cam Day, uh, like doing the layout work for both of his books, which are coming ar- coming along beautifully. So I've got those. I've done a mine related book. I've got my newest one shot that's come out. My new projects that I'm working on, and just I am there right now. I am in that mindset. So, I'm, but I'm trying to be a little bit more cognizant of when I need to take some time myself too, because I didn't do that last time I got into this mindset. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, well, I mean, I was going to ask if you had any uh, advice for anyone trying to, you know, monetize this, but you know, I think we went over, you know, the most important bit of, you know, self-care. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, absolutely. That would 100% be my uh, advice right there. Sweet. Well, uh, you know, I definitely uh, appreciate you taking time to do this. Uh, I've bought most of your stuff while we were talking. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic yeah uh, i'm assuming the heist is the one that stands out the most to you right that was the first one i got because you know like i said i love heists <laughs> well i will say this for all the uh for all the like narrative tropes the gel breaks the intensity of everything that i've said it sounds like it is a full heat on in that adventure at all points but that's that's not the case there are some there's some good like quirky moments to that too including like uh one of the first things that you can encounter there is you run into an improv show where a bard is up on stage the moment that you <laughs> enter the bar and they see you and they point to you and immediately like immediately say, ah, these people are up already. Give them a round of applause and have them join <laughs> us up on stage. And I found a way to incorporate a full on Mad Lib into an improv session that you can fill out with your players and then assign roles to, and you can all act out a full Mad Lib as a group. And let me tell you, uh, one of the things in here allows you to create a brand new spell title, a spell name. And we played this last night and we created the magical spell of Gribble's Runny Diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds hilarious. I've got that. I've got uh, magical cookies. I've got a, a, child's toy that is a an uncommon magic item called the Whizbang wonder sling which is something i'd created for uh another player in my group that i was really happy with that allows you to shoot uh pellets that turn into one of four different magical effects and the pellet the bullet turns into like a uh, marshmallow at the very tail end of it so at the very end you have a free marshmallow too so there are a lot of fun things in this adventure too it's not just dire consequences and that it is also quirkiness and fun and you're gonna you're gonna have a great time playing through this adventure nice yeah i saw the uh uh 
I already forgot the name of what you just said. <laughs> the helium I, heist? No, uh, the, the thing in the manual uh, that you created. Uh, where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? Where'd it go? The Wondersling. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Whizbang Wondersling. So I had a friend of mine come to me uh, way back when, and he wanted a joke item. He is a player that fully doesn't want to uh, capitalize on the min-maxing of his character. He wants to have fun, and he wants to be kind of a uh, a quirky trickster. Most of his players, or mo- most of his characters, have some sort of quirkiness and tricksteriness about them. And he wanted a fun item that was just crazy to play with. So... <laughs> I semi-created this for him during the session and never really returned to like polishing it until this adventure. And when you get this, when you pick it up, when you get a Whizbang Wondersling, the description actively says, this is an item meant for children and tricksters, people that are young at heart. And when you load a bullet into the sling and you send it off, roll a D4, the D4 determines what happens with the bullet. It can be anything from it hits you with a gust of wind that can uh, push you back five feet to the moment that it launches out of your sling, it screams in a cartoonish voice until it uh, hits impact. <laughs> oh, that makes me think of Roger Rabbit. <laughs> yes. There's one of them in there that if you get hit with it, you uh, fall under the effects of a dancing light spell for one minute. And the dancing light spell is concentrated in four stars that circle your head. So, you want stars? You want stars? I'll give you stars. God, I love Roger Rabbit. I do, too. I hated it as a child, but as an adult, I love that movie. I loved it as a child, too. That, that movie was just like, the movie speaks to me. I understand it better as an adult. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, a lot of those jokes went over my childlike head, I can tell you that. Yes. But right now, uh, the two big things that I'm mostly uh, proud of are the Helene Heist, with that being my most recent adventure, and Knights of the Shadow Realm, with that being my biggest thing that I've put out there. Um, uh, past that, anybody that's listening to this, uh, if you are interested, you can look forward to seeing some of my content fall into the uh, realm of Kickstarter early next year with a subclass sub- supplement for the world of Oranth that involves seven new subclasses between 25 and 30 spells for a brand new uh, school of magic and at least two NPC stat blocks for each of the subclasses that the DM can use to throw into any combat uh, scenario that they feel fit with. I know uh, personally, I'd love to have you back talk about your uh, shadow realms one at some point, but I would love to be a part of it. We'll have to schedule that later then. All right. Yeah, because uh, I, I think what also Celestial was like the first thing that got me uh, talking to you. But oh yeah, yeah, the other Celestial. I forgot that one was out there. That's yeah. uh, that's another subclass that I put out. Um, because having a paladin not be able to use their lay on hands for some sort of damaging thing felt like that needed to be fixed. So. The Oath of the Celestial is very much the heart of a burning star sort of mentality. You, you can use radiant energy, energy to burn away the vileness of this land sort of thing. Ooh, and that's cool. <laughs> that was the theme that I went with for that. Nice. 
Yeah, I bought that earlier too. Nice. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, in that case, thank you for uh sitting down and talking. And of course. Uh, yeah, we'll set up something for your uh Shadow Realm one because uh I would like to think a full campaign like that's going to have a lot of fun stuff to talk about. Oh my gosh. I could talk for that one for hours. That's what I like to hear. (laughs) Not just, not just about the campaign itself, but all the hidden stories that are in there that are uh, specific to when we played through it originally. Well, now I definitely want to fucking talk about that one. (laughs) Sweet. All right, man. All right. Well, Well, hopefully you you can have me back on and uh, we can discuss it sometime in the future. Until then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Riffs and Rules. Please leave us a review and give us five stars on iTunes. Also, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Tiers start as low as a dollar, and even that much really helps us out. Supporters get benefits such as behind-the-scenes content, early access to episodes, access to a monthly hangout where you'll be able to chat with the cast, and even input on Riffs and Rules topics. Find us on social media on Twitter at Podcast, on Facebook as Riffwake, and you can send us an email, riffsandrules at gmail.com. That's riffs, A-N-D, rules at gmail.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.